Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We got Mark Reed. I met this guy a couple, of, I think close to a year maybe, um, and been on different masterminds with him and got to hear his story and who he is and hear his development. And he's a very amazing, interesting guy. And hello, welcome to the show, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Having a beautiful day, sunny. The spring, uh, it, it smells spring in the air, so it's like uh, kind of getting excited now. Finish with the big, uh, the big winter dark skies and snow days and freezing days. So it's like my my enthusiasm is growing up as spring is coming in. Yeah, when spring comes, like oh yeah, I gotta I gotta come. Mark, where are you from? I'm uh, I'm actually uh, from uh, Montreal in uh, Quebec, Canada. I was uh, born and raised in a little suburb uh, outside of Montreal, about a, a bridge away from Montreal in, uh, in Quebec. Wow, what was it like growing up there? It was great. It was uh, it's an, it was in a suburb, so a lot of uh, uh, a lot of woods, uh, a lot of uh, it was this uh, farmers community also. So a lot of uh, farming going on. Uh, we used to go play in the in the fields, and uh, there was this uh, farm, um, this uh, pepper pepper farm uh, that we used to go into and uh, throw. Uh, Growing peppers at each other and get run away by the the owner and uh, get chased away and it was like it was really nice. It was a nice suburb, a lot of good friends over there, and uh, it was it was okay for for living for the suburb. It was okay. Um, the family life was another story. It was a little. Uh, well, we'll get more into that with your with your questions. Uh, yeah, and were you growing? Did you grow up in a farming background or just the suburbs or? No, I, I grew in the suburbs. My mother was a, a nurse. She was a certified nurse, auxiliary, sorry, auxiliary nurse. 
And my father was an uh, uh, electronic engineer. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we were like, uh, the family financially, we were doing well. You know, we would do like a, basically a trip every year. Uh, I would do a lot of activities like uh, judo, hockey, uh, swimming lessons, tennis lessons, uh, guitar lessons. I was uh, hyperactive, so they had to find any kind of way necessary to get me out of the house. <laughs> I was a little too rambunctious for them. Too much energy. That's the thing when you're, you're ADHD or ADD, you're just bundles of energy. It needs to be burnt out with something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I used to eat, I was just a sugar uh, addict. Uh, I became a sugar addict, I think, at four years old. Uh, it gives you a high rush eh, when, you, when you, and I would eat sugar out of a spoon, uh, like literally in the bowl. Or uh, Nestle Quick, that chocolate powder, I would eat that when I was a kid. And it was funny because they were, I was diagnosed with a hyperactivity. They didn't know then it was, a, I was born in 1967, so they didn't know then about uh, ADHD and uh, all the other things. So they, um, They had this uh, medication that was called, a, in French, it's Italian. I don't know in English, it's Ritalin or something like that. Yeah. It was supposed to, it still exists today. It was supposed to help focus, help me focus and calm me down. But since I was eating sugar uh, and I wasn't doing it, like they didn't see me doing it. I was hiding when I was doing it. So the, the pills wouldn't, actually wouldn't work because uh, it was counter, counter effective. So they would up my toes and they wouldn't understand what was going on with me. So it was like a kind of a funny situation at the same time. But, you know, for them, it was like, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they didn't know what was going on. I was this monster. So It's a dangerous combination, but I, I, get, <laughs> I get you're coming from there, you know? <laughs> so um, tell us about growing up. Like, were you barred the sports and everything kind of... Where did where did you go from there? You know, well, basically, uh, you know, if I go into depth of the story, uh, I was actually uh, I was born in Montreal. Uh, my real mother, because the, the parents I'm talking about there were my adopted parents. Um, I was born uh, in Montreal in the '67, uh, 1967. The um, The clergy here in Quebec still had an oppressive hand on the people. It was uh, we were starting to liberate ourselves from that, but it was still the values were still like uh, like very Christian, but not on the good side of the Christianity, more on the oppressive side of Christianity. So my mother, my real mother, was 17 years old when she was pregnant with with me, out of wedlock, and that was seen like as a as a mortal sin. And uh, what they do with these girls is they would take take them out of their community and uh, take them to the city, which was Montreal. I don't actually know where I was conceived. Uh, and then they would uh, take those girls and bring them to orphanage where they would give birth to the kid. And uh, then those kids were actually uh, physically taken away from the mother and the mother was... Uh, sent back home packing or uh, they would keep the mother there in order to pay for the medical bills that um, that uh, the pregnancy and the, uh, the medical needs were incurred. So they, 
and I, I did some research on that place. It was called the Misericorde Hospital in Montreal. I did some research on that place because I'm actually writing a book. And uh, it was called the House of Wars, where these girls were, they, it was run by nuns and priests, and uh, there was a lot of physical sexual abuse uh, on the girls, uh, on the mothers there. And a lot of them killed themselves, a lot of them threw themselves off of the fourth floor of the building. Uh, a lot of them, there was a river nearby, went uh, to drown themselves in the river because of the abuse over there was so, the abuse of you know, oppression was like so intense that, you know, these girls have no more value. They were treated as a child of sin, as Satan's daughter. That's what they were called uh, while they were there. And I, I, even if I don't remember, like as a child, I can still like uh, s uh, smell when I smell bleach, I have this bad feeling inside me because they would, you know, everything in, that, in those times was clean with bleach. You know, they didn't have all the product that we have today. And uh, so, and I stayed there for two years. Uh, I don't know what happened to me then when I was a kid, but what I read there is like even the kids would get physically sexually abused. And uh, so I, I, I was in there for two years and then I was adopted by these parents. Uh, my mother, uh, who still today is, uh, has no literal no sense, uh, still today my, my brother asked who is their real child because she, she had him and then she had a physical complication that she couldn't have any more kids. And then she had, uh, they wanted to adopt another kid, but my father was the one who wanted to adopt. My mother didn't want any kids at all. And still today she, you know, uh, she has two amazing granddaughters that she doesn't see and doesn't want to take care of. So uh, that was the mother that I had. And my father was actually an alcoholic father. Uh, he was uh, not a drunk that would come in like bashing at night. He was like this regular drunk. He needed his drink every day, every night. He was like very irregular on his drinks. He needed them. If he didn't have them, uh, he would get very like intensely impatient and very aggressive. He was... Uh, he was British. Uh, he was in the British Navy. Um, he was actually born in England during the Second World War, where my grandmother would, uh, my English grandmother would tell me that she would, uh, with him and her brother, run from bunker to bunker to avoid the German uh, bombs. So, you know, a lot of paradigms, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, um, the difficulties for my parents to really give me what I need. Uh, and I was this kid that was brought into this family with, with already like heavy, heavy wounds, heavy like, uh, you know, it didn't start well. <laughs> so <laughs> it really didn't start well for me. So I got into this family already wounded and refusing love. I would, they were, my mother would tell me after that, uh, Every time somebody in the family would try to hug me, I would literally push them away. I would actually like be enraged, uh, throw, I would throw a temper tantrum when they would try to like hug me or love me and all that. So the, the communication was like very difficult. It was very difficult for them to understand what was going on with me. They thought it was a, you know, a blessing for me. They, they saw it as a blessing for me to be adopted. And it wasn't a way because they took me away from that place. But at the same time, they didn't know what, what they had in their hands. 
uh, I was already full of anger, full of fear, and full of hate that they couldn't cope with that. And in, in those years, in the 60s, 70s, uh, they didn't have the mindset, they did not, they, uh, you know, people around did not have the awareness of what was really going on and how to deal with people like, you know, with wounds like me. So it was like, uh, it was something like difficult. And um, my father was like, uh, actually, uh, he was, a, uh, you know, an abuser. And uh, he's dead today. Uh, he died when I was 11, but, uh, you know, he was an abuser. He was a physical and sexual abuser. He didn't know how to deal with his own pain. You know, he transmitted that onto me. He was like, he could not control over me because uh, I was like uncontrollable. Uh, like, you know, just being hyperactive and eating sugar on top of what I already had. Uh, he could not, he couldn't control me. I was, on top of that, I was rebel. You know, I was a real rebel. You know, I would like to confront him all the time. Even at six, seven years old, I was already confronting him. It's like inside me, it's like, the, you're not gonna get me, you bastard. You know, it's like, you're not gonna get on top of me. You're not gonna, you know, get the best of me. And I've always had that kind of attitude all my life, which, you know, sometimes is good and sometimes it's not that good. But uh, so, you know, I grew up like um, in that family. And, uh, you know, in those times also, uh, you know, you didn't talk about what was going on in your family. You know, whenever you, we go to family party, we had to have like this perfect whole family. Everything seemed perfect. And, uh, but it, it was like totally the opposite. I would, uh, uh, every time I hear my father coming home from work, I, I didn't know what kind of emotional, physical, and mental state he would be in. Uh, so it was fear. There was fear all the time, uh, not knowing what's going on. What am I going to get? And being a rebel at school, uh, I would get into fights. I would get, uh, you know, suspended. I would get uh, thrown out of classes. So, uh, and every time that would happen, I would get like a severe beating from my father. So, uh, it was not, an, you know, it was not a happy childhood. It was like very difficult. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I uh, I wanted to be outside all the time. I wanted to play outside all the time. And of course, you know, my, with my mindset and my emotional uh, disposition, I would hang on with people like me, uh, rebels. That was my crowd, you know? So uh, it was like very, very, I couldn't, you know, today I, I've done a lot of forgiveness work on that. I've done a lot of, you know, a lot of clearing work on that, a lot of emotional work on that. So I'm pretty free from that. So I can like uh, look at my parents with comp compassion and uh, understanding that they must have been so confused, you know, to have this kind of kid in their uh, in their life and uh, not knowing uh, what was going on. And my father was born like worldwide totally in England. My mother came from a family where, you know, nothing was said, nothing was open, you know, there was probably abuse in that family, I don't know. Um, so, you know, it was like, uh, I have compassion for them, you know, knowing, okay, they, they must have been suffering like crazy to, to be able to, to bring a kid through that, you know? And I still, my mother today, there, there's no conversation. Now, even with my brother, you know, there's between them, there's no conversation, like true conversation. Like, uh, where, hey, mom, I feel like this today, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, we don't have that. It's uh, very superficial and uh, very cold. And then my father, 
When I was 10, uh, like I said, I was a rebel. When I was 10, I, I, I put a knife to my father's uh, throat. We were at the dinner table and uh, I, I bitched on my mother, like literally. And because uh, she, was, she wasn't protecting me, you know, I, un I understood that a mother should be there to protect her child. And I didn't feel she was protecting me from my father. So I, you know, I called her a bitch or I don't remember in French something. And my father just grabbed my arm and like started like breaking my arm. And I just took my steak knife and I literally put it to his throat and I, I poked him. You know, I poked him with the knife. And I told him, I said, I'm going to kill you. And um, of course, he was stronger than me, so I got a really good beating out of it. But I had a serious intent to end his life. Today, I understand that I didn't have the intent to end his life. I had the intent to, to make the pain stop. But that was my way of uh, voicing, voicing that. So he died a year later, not because of me, <laughs> but honestly, I thought he, it was because of me. Uh, he died of alcoholism. Uh, the doctor told him that, that uh, he was having, he was going through liver failure and renal failure, and uh, he had Palmer, uh, you know, difficulty with his lungs. He was a heavy smoker. So uh, the doctor told him, listen, you have to take care of your health. You have to stop drinking. You have to change your habits, your eating habits. You have to change everything in your life. Uh, if you don't do that, you are going to die. And uh, my father decided that no, uh, yeah, life wasn't worth living. So he decided that uh, that was it. So he let himself die. So, and I knew that, I felt that through, through all the time that he was he was dying, you know, I would, as kids, we are very intuitive. And uh, I felt that and I, I was, we were getting into heavy fights where I would punch him and he would punch me and uh, physically he was getting like very heavy in the house. Cause I was rebelling against his will to die. You know, I was like, hey, listen, you, I still need you. You're still my father, you know? So he died a year, year later and uh, then me, uh, you know, it's like uh, the oppression from my father, the control from my father wasn't there anymore. So I just broke out. I just turned, I turned into a monster. Uh, my mother was terrified of me. My brother was terrified of me. Uh, I let my hair grow long. At 11 years old, I had a, a upside down cross as an earring. Uh, I reveled against the clergy. I reveled against whatever was authority. I got kicked out of the school I was in. And in fact, I got kicked out at every school I went after. Uh, I tried literally to kill my mother also when I was 13, uh, 12. My, my brother had to stop me. I was running after her with a kitchen knife and uh, my brother physically had to put me down uh, in order to stop me. Uh, of course, my mother had no choice but to throw me out. Uh, so I ended up in a, in a group homes. That didn't work out, I got thrown out. I've already started to steal to be a, um, a criminal then uh, at 12 years old. I already started like to do BNEs, uh, breaking and doing, uh, doing drugs, drinking. Uh, I became a, an alcoholic like my father and I also became a drug addict at that age. And um, I didn't start every drug till later, but still. So I ended up in, uh, I ended up in Yusha. I ended up in uh, for a two-year two-year sentence in a youth jail, and uh, my violence. I was also very violent, so I ended up. Uh, so that yes, Aaron, that was kind of my <laughs> my my childhood. But there's there's a lot of good coming out of that in a way that uh, 
my parents they you know they gave me they gave me a lot they gave me uh, uh, through that uh, you know they gave me like uh, incentive they gave me awareness which which I have today uh, they gave me a, a high 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 sensitivity uh, very intuitive my mother was very you know even if she was she was not maternal she was like a very courageous woman uh, my father was a genius actually it was a he invented something that was very useful to the world I don't remember what it was actually it was you know towards microwaves and stuff like that with electronics we did a lot of trips you know we did a lot of sailing and we'll talk about that later but you know uh, I became a sailing addict uh, which served me a lot saved me a lot from a lot of things uh, like I said we'll get into that so that uh, I think that answers your question in everything that happens you know that you explained did you you know when you got out of jail as a junior and you did this and I know you were going to talk about sailing shortly but did you eventually kind of realize I need to stop this anger this monster that you had become uh, I didn't I didn't have the awareness uh, to answer your question I didn't have the awareness I didn't know uh, it was only around like 20 two years old that I realized there was something wrong with me. Uh, you know, if, uh, you know, for, for, for listeners, you know, there's a lot of us that, you know, we're set in a, in a bubble, you know, our world is a bubble, you know, and this is what is going on in our world. Uh, you know, so we believe that this bubble that we're in is normal, you know, and uh, so for me, what I was living was normal. That was life, you know, because I was surrounded by uh, abuse and anger. I ended up in huge jail. I was surrounded by uh, other criminals like me. Uh, you know, of course, there was like these, uh, it was the, they were trying out this new kind of jail where there was a, uh, not only uh, guards, but there was only uh, also psychotherapists that were there who would try to help us. So it kind of opened our minds to something else, but we were still like surrounded by people like us. So that was my normal world. So the minute that I got out of huge jail, uh, I just transported that world with me, not thinking that there was anything different. I would see that there was something different around me from other people. Um, but for me, that was my world. And I was kind of unconsciously condemned to that world. So uh, I ended up when, when I, okay, we're gonna go we're talking about sailing because something happened. When I, when I was in that huge sail, <clears throat> there was this, uh, this guy over there, one who was on the board, the, uh, the administrative board of the huge sail, who had this amazing idea to uh, rent uh, tall ships, uh, two, three mass sailboats, and uh, to have a social experience on those two sailboats. The social experience was to bring kids, uh, 17 to 22 years old of age, to bring them, 25 of us, to bring them on a sailboat, a three mass, 133 foot sailboat, which was actually a school sailboat where you would actually learn all about sailing. You would learn how to read charts, how to read maps, how to uh, set up a route, uh, 
how to actually steer the boat, how to uh, align the sails, which sail you need and what kind of wind, how to actually cook on a sailboat. That was actually a challenge. Um, clean everything, everything that's about a sailboat. Uh, do mechanics, electronic works and all that. So everything that was uh, about sailboats were taught that to us. So the show experience was to bring kids from different kinds of backgrounds. There was kids from, there was three of us from the jail. There was uh, five from university, a few from a group home, a few from my school, a few from colleges. Uh, so we were all, you know, mixed up together on that boat. And, you know, on a boat like that, you know, you can't run when you're out at sea, you kind of run away from what's going on. You have to, you know, stick with it. And uh, so for me, it was, uh, it was a pretty profound experience. Uh, not at the moment. The, 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 the knowledge, the awareness from that experience came later. Because, you know, all the paradigms, all the, like I said, my bubble of existence was like not first yet. I was into it. So, you know, there was alcohol on the boat also. So, I, you know, I, I was drinking. Uh, I was, you know, 17 years old. Uh, I already had a sexual experience before when I was 12 and, you know, complete sexual experience when I was 12 and 13 before 12 being thrown in jail. So, of course, when I came out of jail uh, on that boat, there was girls my age. So I was running after everything I could find. And uh, on, on the stops, we, we left from uh, French Antilles, Martinique. Uh, we did a stop in uh, Saint Martin. We did uh, six days at sea. We did a stop in Bermuda where, you know, I, I, I found drugs there and I, you know, I ended up in bars getting, you know, really wasted. And uh, then we did another stop, uh, and there were six days of sea and back to Canada, we were in Halifax. And we were out there for a five day party because it was uh, in 1984 when all the tall ships came to Quebec to celebrate uh, an anniversary of the discovery of Quebec, the 350, I think. So there was this, in Halifax is where all the tall ships would uh, reunite. So uh, there was this huge five-day party. So of course I got totally like, uh, I got totally like, uh, I, I got back to my bubble, to where I was at. You know, I ended up stealing stuff there. I ended up, you know, I was like, I was this uh, train wreck. <laughs> there was, I couldn't stop, you know. And uh, then we ended up in Quebec. I had to go back to the huge jail for kind of a recap of what went there. Uh, on the boat because my sentence was was not over. Uh, I still had three months to do, and uh, since I used drugs and I drank and I had sexual intercourse on the boat, uh, they decided that uh, I had to be punished for it. So they decided to put me in the hole. And yes, in New Jail there are holes, also solitary confinement. And I totally refused, and I ran out. I ran away from the jail. I said, no way, I'm not, no, 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 no. I just had a month and a half, because uh, the trip lasted for a month and a half. I just had a month and a half of freedom. And actually all I wanted to do was stay on the boat. I didn't want to get off the boat. I wanted to continue that flight, to be on the boat. It was, you know, it's this sense of freedom, this sense of like accomplishment to be on a boat, to be able to drive that boat, to sail it, was like, the, it was empowering. So a lot of things in that boat, uh, planted seeds inside me. And uh, then I, I, I ended up going back to, you know, 
since I didn't want to go back to jail, we ended up like uh, at a meeting with the social social worker and my mother. And she agreed to take me uh, back uh, to live with her. I was 17 and a half then. And um, then there was three rules for me to stay with her. So I had to find a job. I had to go or I had to go to school. But I wasn't, uh, you know, I couldn't use drugs or drink. And uh, after a month of uh, not going to school, not looking for work, and uh, two of my friends bringing me back home with holes in my arm because I just in- injected cocaine into my arms. Uh, that was it. My mother had enough with me. She would like, literally pick me up that thing. And uh, that was finished for a relationship uh, to them. Uh, and then I ended up in BC. I moved to BC when I was 18 years old. And, you know, I, again, I brought that bubble with me. But, you know, I had like so many amazing opportunities when I was in BC. I was like, uh, I had all these work opportunities. I had all these people around me that, you know, they were good, but I pushed them away and ended up back into my crowd, you know, having like uh, uh, heavy drugs, getting into heavy drugs, getting into like stealing again, selling drugs, uh, doing holdups. Um, mind you, that was at, at 19 years old, you know, I was a major then. And uh, having all kinds of uh, like twerded, like bizarre sexual activities. I would get like addiction, you know, sexual, uh, you know, this, you know, sex was an addiction for me. Cocaine became an addiction, hard drugs, acid and uh, LSD and all that became an addiction to me. Everything that could take me away from me became an addiction. Uh, and then I ended up uh, meeting this girl who was like, amazing, 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 amazing woman. And she really, really, really loved me. And uh, that I was, I, met, I was in Whistler then because I did two seasons of ski in Whistler. I was 22 then. And uh, that woman like made a profound uh, impact on me. But I couldn't take it. I couldn't take her love. I didn't know what, what love was. I never felt love. Uh, and um, we ended up, it ended up breaking up in like harsh manner, you know, we were in, uh, in Fort St. John in British Columbia, where we uh, like, we thought we ended, it, ended up living our lives together and uh, we were so in love, you know, but, you know, she knew I was stealing, she knew I was doing drugs and uh, I promised her that I would stop stealing and, you know, you know, go down on drugs, you know, not necessarily stop, but you and, uh, you know, relax on drinking too. So we can have like a, a kind of some kind of normal life. But I couldn't. I just didn't know how. I didn't have the resources. Uh, I was still in my bubble. I didn't know that I could change. I didn't know there was other realities uh, that I could live. So that love, that woman's love just made me like so uncomfortable. So uh, actually it would actually make me aggressive. When somebody would try to love me, I would become like very aggressive. Uh, I wasn't aggressive to, towards her, but uh, I could have been. It was like I became like heavily jealous and uh, in a way it would have become dangerous physically for her and her friends because I had like malicious intent. And uh, we ended up like, I ended up just leaving, leaving for St. John, coming back to Quebec. And then that, that's when it hit me. That's when something happened inside me. It's like, okay, now I'm starting to see that there is something seriously wrong with me. I had this amazing woman that really loved me. 
And there was parts of me that really wanted that, but I couldn't cope with it. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't accept it. I couldn't manage it. So, and uh, I started to, uh, to read books. You know, actually, one uh, the first books that I ever read on, you know, self growth was actually uh, the Pacific Warrior, uh, which is an amazing book, and it's uh, it's all about like the journey uh, towards change. So, and I got into other books, uh, Marianne uh, Williamson, and uh, I don't remember all the other books that I started, like just started to read and, uh, you know, try to find something. So I, I started to see like therapists, I started to see healers, I started to see, uh, I, I thought I had like problems with my mental, so I went to see psychiatrists uh, in order to get like medication and all that. I was actually like searching for myself, but the problem was that uh, the problems, they, they weren't my addiction, but I was addicted and I couldn't stop my addiction. So I, all the help that I was getting wasn't doing anything because, you know, I would go to see a therapist. And of course, when you see a therapist, you know, we talk and emotions get shuffled. And uh, most of the time when I was, uh, getting out of the, the appointment, I already had my drugs prepared because I knew that I would need a hit or something uh, in order to not feel what was going on inside me. And, um, but then I got like seriously heavy into cocaine and my life just took a turn for the worse. Uh, at 26 years old, I was like, uh, right now I weigh 160 pounds. Uh, I'm pretty healthy. At uh, 26, I was, uh, 110 pounds uh, green. I was dying physically. Uh, I've been on a, like a six month uh, heavy cocaine run where uh, every day was just about getting my head. Every day was just about what can I steal today? What can I do? What can I work out today to, in order to get myself wasted? And uh, But in that period, there was this guy. Um, who was taking actually was taking a, a psychotherapy course uh, with uh, Marion Williamson's uh, teachings on our basis, and uh, one of his uh, duties or work schedule he had to uh, give free um, sessions uh, in order to train. So uh, he offered me he offered me free sessions. So for six months. I went to see him every week, every week, every week. In any kind of state that I was, I went to see. Because I wanted to have a solution. I wanted to get out of that. I didn't know uh, that, uh, how to stop, how to you know, stop that train wreck and destroying myself. Because all, basically all I wanted to do was do the same thing my dad did. He, you know, I just wanted to let myself die. I tried to kill myself. I just, you know, didn't have the courage to really put a gun to my mouth and uh, pull the trigger or hang myself, you know. Or maybe there was, and that's what I believe today, there was something inside me that, you know, wanted strongly to live. So um, I didn't go through with it. And uh, so in those six months, uh, every time that I would walk in, you know, I was in a bad emotional state. And every time I would walk out, I was in a worse emotional state because we couldn't find a solution. Uh, and one day, um, it was like, I, I was dying. I was like, one day I literally like, okay, I'm going to buy a gun. 
and I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull the trigger. And uh, something happened that day. I was reading through a newspaper and uh, I, I saw an ad uh, for uh, Cocaine Anonymous, which is the cocaine addict uh, help groups uh, based on Alcoholics Anonymous uh, teachings and proceeds. And uh, I don't know why, it, it just, I, I just called. You know, there was something like pulling me, something like so strong at the time, I just called. And uh, that was uh, 9 o'clock a.m. on a Saturday morning. And that afternoon, I was sitting in a meeting. And uh, that day, I stopped using. Uh, I stopped drinking. Uh, and uh, for 12 years, I didn't do coke. For 12 years, I didn't use drugs, nothing. But I transferred my addictions into sexuality. Uh, and those type of fraternities, AA and CA and Narcotics Anonymous, uh, which are all fraternities to help people uh, overcome addiction. Uh, there's a lot of suffering people. There's a lot of suffering girls, which are really, really, really easy to manipulate into sex. Because most of us believe that to have love, you have to have sex. So kind of mixed up, but that's the way it was. So I really went on, on a rampage um, for about like five years, six years. I went on a crazy rampage, uh, having sex with, you know, then again, not to feel myself. And uh, then I, again, I, I met this woman. It's all about women. Eh? <laughs> I met this woman who became my, actually, she was telling me, she said, I'm going to be your water. Uh, and um, she ended up being my Waterloo. After our relationship with her, she was like abusive. She was this bitch and she was saying that I, she was a bitch. She was agreeing to the fact that she was a bitch. She was comfortable with it. And uh, she was destroying me, like literally. But that put a stop to um, to my sexual addiction. Because, and uh, we're not together now. Like after two years, we broke up. And it was like a very, very dysfunctional relationship, like throwing phones at each other, throwing plates at each other, cursing, and not get, not getting into physical uh, uh, dramas. But you know, it, it wasn't far from that. And uh, when I walked out of that relationship, I was like, uh, I was destroyed. I was like, I had no more confidence in me. I had nothing left, nothing left, and. Uh, that put a stop to my sexual addiction, and uh, but then I went into porn. So it's like it's all all about transfer, and uh, that lasted for years. And you know, now I'm over. I'm over the porn addiction. I'm over the drugs addiction. Of course, I you know we had I had a relapse. Now uh, I haven't done coke in like uh, 15, 17. I'm not counting anymore, but 15, 17 years. Uh, all I've done in the last years was smoke once in a while, uh, a pot, you know, pot and stuff like that. But every time, you know, I get into that, I, I, uh, I get addicted and I, you know, if I have like the surgeon quality, I will go through it. I will not stop until it's all done, you know. And uh, the last time was, uh, it's been two years now since, uh, in the last year, I've had like, sorry, one puff of joint, of uh, pot, and it, uh, that was like in the last, uh, August, September, and uh, for the first time in my life, uh, there was this uh, feeling inside me when I when I smoked that puff, uh, 
for the first time inside, there's something that cried inside me that I have, Mark, you have too much to lose. Before that, nothing like that happened in my life, you know? Before that, I was still, that, that bubble that I was talking about, you know, it was like bad things, you know, bad uh, behaviors were leaving from it, giving place for better behaviors, better behaviors. You know, I would not lose job as often. I would not lose my apartment as often. I would not put myself uh, in critical situations as often. I would not steal anymore. Uh, I would like, so all these things were slowly leaving. Because, you know, even though I was uh, in some kind of addictions through my path to the AA fraternities, I would still do some work on myself. I would still go into like uh, weekend retreats, I would uh, week retreats. Uh, I saw a sex therapist for four years. Uh, I saw a psychotherapist for uh, three, four years also. Uh, I've done a lot of work on myself, you know, uh, you know, peeling off the pain, peeling off the anger, peeling off the, the, the hate, you know, and like listening and reading like all, all these books behind me are self-help books. Uh, honestly, I've read half of them and uh, I've read a lot that are not there either. So, you know, I've, in my lifetime so far, I've probably read like over a thousand books on self-help, self-growth. I've listened to a lot of uh, podcasts, a lot of uh, positive things from Bob Proctor, Les Brown, uh, on YouTube, to name a few, uh, Mary Morrissey. And uh, which, you know, slowly peeled off the hate, uh, the anger, and it gave me more awareness to uh, what I'm allowed to give gave me more, more, more awareness to where I'm uh, actually where I'm from and uh, that I'm a child of God and I'm a child of the universe and I'm worthy of all this beautiful life. And uh, it also gave me more awareness to, towards that purpose, towards that belief. Uh, it hasn't been easy and it's still, there's still days that it's not easy. There's still days that, uh, that you know, that bubble that I was into wants to come back. And uh, it's my responsibility today uh, to not blame anybody about that bubble. It's my responsibility today to assume the full responsibility of that bubble and uh, do the things not to get back into it. And, uh, you know, focus on the positive, focus on the beautiful, focus on what can I bring instead of uh, what can I take? Because that bubble made me a very selfish person. It was always, always about the taking you know if i had friends if uh, if you had nothing to offer me you weren't my friend uh and it even went so far as to if you didn't look physically good uh if you didn't make me look good you weren't my friend and uh, so there's a lot there was a lot of ego into that so basically you know that, that that's where that's where you know i come from and uh I'm going to let you go with another question because I'm sure you have a few. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think my, my biggest question of all of them is, have you kind of come to terms with the addiction to be and do what you're here to do in the sailing and your your business and everything else, you know? Yeah, well, it, it came to a point where, uh, okay, I had like, you know, I said earlier, I had to take full responsibility. Yes, of course, things were done to me where I was a victim, you know. But up until the time that I, I you're not out and you start realizing that what we're doing is not, there's no good or bad, but what what we're doing is not serving us. 
uh, we have the responsibility to take action on it. And in the last three years now, I've been working like really, really, really hard on myself. Uh, you know, to, to be what I'm supposed to be, to be, to do what I'm supposed to do here on earth, uh, to become what I'm created to be. Uh, that was my main focus. So the, um, I was talking about the, 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 the sailing uh, experience that I've had. And, and, you know, I was sailing since I was two years old with my parents. We started with a little small sailboat canoe with a, you know, a small sail and a two, two HP motor and uh, taking sailing courses when I was 10, 11 years old. And after the sailing trip on the, on the three-mass sailboat, I, you know, I sailed a lot after that, you know, and um, I've always like been around sailing most of my life. And in the last few years, my brother bought a, a 30 foot sailboat. And uh, every time I got into the sailboat, it just gave me that sense of peace and a sense of relief from the stress, from the pressure of life. Because you're, you're really in tune with nature when, when you, you manage to align the sails and uh, get the feeling that you're, you're kind of, you're, you're not in control, but you're working with nature. To, to get this like a uh, nine ton piece of material, you know, moving in harmony with nature. So it gives you like this great sense of uh, fulfillment. Yeah, and peace and uh, yeah. And uh, so uh, that, that trip that I've done, uh, the boats are owned by a foundation in France. The foundation was created by a priest. Uh, he deceased, uh, I think it's four years ago, uh, whose main goal was to take kids off the street and bring them on the sailboats, giving them a life experience. And he also uh, created a shipyard where they fix boats. Um, and that boat goes, there's two boats actually, though. There, there's uh, uh, two, three mass sailboats. There go all year round where uh, kids from the street, from any kinds of walks of life, go on the boat and learn how to, uh, yes, if they want, become a sailor. And he also offers help if these kids want to become professional sailors and all that. So, uh, you know, with all the years that I, that I went through, all that I went, there was always this, this nudging inside me, Mark, you have to do something about this. Mark, you have to do something about this. Mark, you have to, you know. And funny thing, my, my brother bought this 30-foot sailboat and he had no clue about sailing. <laughs> and, uh, I think he bought it for me. And uh, I'm the one who teaches him about sailing. And, um, but that was kind of like, okay, you know, well, what is life showing me? I was already starting to be open to what, you know, what life shows you and brings to you. And uh, so I started about like before the COVID, the year before the COVID, I started bringing kids, not kids from the street, not kids from any kind of difficult kind of background, but kids that were working for me, uh, with me, uh, who had financially no way of, because uh, it's expensive, sailing is, 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 is not a sport, it's a luxury. And uh, with today's prices getting even more to a luxury. And bring kids that, you know, never had the opportunity to be on a sailboat, uh, like the 20 year old kids, uh, girls and boys, and, uh, you know, come and spend the afternoon on the sailboat. And uh, the reactions that I had from them was like, wow. You know, a lot of them just, wow, oh, I never thought it would be bad. This is so cool. Some of them, uh, you know, told me, okay, I want to take courses. So, the, you know, it, it kind of cemented 
what this priest in France did. It kind of cemented it inside me. So uh, I decided, okay. Uh, so when the COVID hit, I was actually in the process of building a project to, uh, you know, build a nonprofit organization to, in order to uh, facilitate uh, bringing kids from UCL coming out of UCL, not into UCL, because uh, for now I don't want to get into uh, the minor uh, part of uh, the youth because it's very, very complicated and with all the laws and all that, it's very. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you have to be uh, credible. And uh, since I'm starting, I have no, uh, you know, experience, credibility put into the nonprofit. So I'm probably going to attack that uh, part of the, uh, the kids uh, when I'm, you know, when the, the project has been like one, two year running, then I would have had that credibility installed so I can go ahead. Because you have to deal with governance. You have to deal with the, in Canada, it's a protection of the youth. It's a protection protection of the youth act which is very very extremely uh, severe and very hard to get into so uh you have to be strong so for now i'm moving i actually i'm still in quebec now but uh on, by the end of the month uh, 4th of april i'm going to be moving to british columbia um, to uh, get that project going I'm going to start with uh, getting, I already have a few contacts, but I'm, you know, I tend to make a lot more with people who already own sailboats who are willing to either rent or provide the sailboats for free. So I can bring kids out, coming out of you jail, like uh, over there is 19 years old, uh, onto those sailboats to give him the same kind of experience that I was put into. Uh, and uh, that sailboat that, uh, that I was on, uh, it's called the Belle Espoir Deux in English. It, it would translate out uh, as the Beautiful Hope uh, Two, the second one. And now I'm on the third one. Uh, they rebuilt it. And uh, that uh, boat is still in operation. So uh, one of my goals is also to bring uh, 10 kids a year uh, on that boat. So the, the, the process would be the kids that come on the boat, uh, it would be like to start for an afternoon or a full day. And then we would go on to weekends. And then the kids that are really like showing promise, uh, not only as sailors, uh, but mostly in their own lives, that are taking their lives to responsibility uh, seriously. And they want to grow, they want to do something serious. And they're showing me that, you know, they're, uh, they're serious about their recovery and uh, getting back into, we'll put it, you know, in society. Uh, to be productive and, uh, and all that. Well, they will have the opportunity to come on the sailboat with me for, uh, we'll start for a 10 day, 10 day trip. And uh, we'll see how it goes. And uh, probably uh, later in a, in a month, a month uh, uh, during a month period of time on the boat. Uh, so I'm actually setting up, I'm starting to set up uh, the nonprofit organization. So I'm just at the beginning of setting it up. I'm looking now for uh, board members. Uh, I was surprised to to see that uh, in Quebec you need three board members to create a nonprofit organization. So, and in British Columbia you need five. So the the, the challenge just got bigger because uh, I want people that are like minded uh, to what I'm at. You know, with the, to the kind of you know mindset that I have that nothing is impossible. That all is possible. I'm actually in that mindset. I'm actually looking to purchase uh, a three-mast sailboat. Uh, I've actually sent a letter to the uh, owner 
uh, to the broker to get in touch with the owner to see what could be uh, possibly done. Because right now I don't have it. It's a $1.2 million Canadian. Uh, for now, I don't have that kind of money. But, you know, as they say, anything is it. Nothing is impossible. All is possible. So I'm working towards that premises that maybe we could uh, make a deal together so I can get the boat as soon, soon as possible so I can get that project going as soon as possible. And with that boat, that will run year-round. Well, there will be kids, not only from uh, from Vancouver, it could be kids from the States, from, you know, like getting association uh, with the centers, the youth centers and all that, that are helping kids, uh, you know, group homes, uh, centers for the young adults, uh, all kinds of connection to, to help the kid get out of what I was into. Because there, there's, you know, I realized that uh, there, there's so many kids that, you know, were like me, victims of dire situations. And uh, they end up uh, major, they end up, uh, you know, of age, 18, 19, whatever it is in those com other countries. And uh, it's not that they don't have resources, they don't have the beliefs. And that's what's the hardest part is all these resources are out there, but they don't have the belief system inside themselves that they are allowed to change, that they have the right to change. I was, I thought I was condemned to that type of life. To be honest, when I was 13, I was convinced that I wouldn't make it far, further than 25 years old. That was my belief. So, you know, just to bring in them on that sailboat, on those sailboats, and of course, when they are going to be on the sailboat, they're going to be not going to be sitting by the side and just like, you know, okay, I'm on the sailboat. They're going to be steering. We're going to give them responsibilities. We're going to show them right away that they can accomplish accomplish something. Then we're going to show them how to steer the boat with the sail and get that feeling that when the, the boat just kicks off, hits the sail and just picks up speed and it, it can go really fast, actually. And, um, you know, and get that feeling of power, they get, get that feeling of accomplishment inside of them, that they can just start believing that they are worthy. Just start believing that, okay, you know, I can do things. And, you know, on that boat, I will be with them. And I believe so much because I believe in myself today. And I believe so much that they have so much potential as everyone else has. We all have something to create in this world and our responsibility is to find it and do it. And, you know, once we found it, life, you know, there's no limits. There's, the sky is the limit. And even further, the universe is the limit where you can create whatever you want. And those kids have the same potential. We're all the same. We're all connected. You know, we just have different background, different issues to go for and to go through. And once these, you know, once these kids are in contact with somebody like me who believes in them, and of course the boat, the boat owner that I'm going to choose uh, to either rent or borrow the boats, they're going to be there. They're going to have to be there, you know, for insurance purposes and other purposes, responsibility purposes. Uh, they're going to have to have the same mindset as I do. And what's really cool about the sailing world is uh, the sailing world is very different from uh, the motor uh, boat world. Where in the sailing world, there's a lot of, you know, it's a kind of a community where everybody helps each other. Uh, actually, our boat is uh, in Montreal now, is in a marina where it's a, uh, mainly sailboats there. And uh, it's really like a community. You know, people help each other. Hey, my boat has this problem. Okay, I'm going to go help you. And uh, I have a problem with this sail. I have a problem with this. Hey, I found this piece for you. 
you know, it's all about that. So it's uh, sailing is like a different mindset. So it's a lot of it's kind of the same mindset that I I want to bring. So when these kids are going to get in contact with people like us and other people that I'm going to bring around also, uh, they, they, we're gonna we're gonna pour love into them. We're gonna pour like faith into them. We're gonna pour like confidence into them. It's just what was done to me. Uh, you know, I've been surrounding myself now for the last three years with. Uh, beautiful-minded people who've poured into me, who've poured love into me, who've poured uh, faith into me, confidence into me. Uh, you know, I've started a speaking career, and some people have been helping me out with that. Uh, you know, pushing me. You know, not pushing me in the wrong sense, but pushing me. You can do it, Marty. You can do it. We have faith in you. Yes, you're good. You're good at this. You've got a message to send out. You can. You know, I wouldn't be here telling you this if uh, if it wasn't for them because. I would have shied off this opportunity. I don't know. I was just like, no way. No, I'm not putting myself out there. No way. But that's my mission. My mission is to put myself out there to show people that whatever you've been through, you know, you, you, you can live the life that you want to live. And that's what I'm creating today. You know, I'm creating my own life. I'm creating that sailing life for me. And uh, if you want to go in two, three years in the future from now, uh, Five of those kids that I'm going to be in contact with, that I went, that, you know, that we went through the process of the, the sailing and on the three-mast sailboat, and they're still showing me that uh, they are, uh, you know, they're willing to take their own responsibility, their own life and responsibility, and do good. Uh, they're going to have the opportunity to come with me, and this is actually one of my dreams, also, that I haven't done yet. Uh, so it's going to be like a win-win situation there, and that's what it's all about. When you all people, you win. Uh, they're uh, they're going to be able to come with me on an official uh, race sailboat, which are far sixty five uh, sailing yacht, which are the Formula One of racing. These beasts can go uh, at like forty knots an hour, which is like huge. Like the, the record is, I think it's around fifty knots an hour, and uh, we're gonna be able to go on one of those boats and uh, participate in a real official race. And uh, we're going to win it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've always, you know, I love these underdog movies. You, you know, Aaron, these movies where yeah. the, the, these underdogs, everybody's believed they're not going to make it and they end up winning. Well, that's my vision. We're going to be this underdog crew and we're going to win one of those races. So, you know, so that's, uh, you know, I'm talking about it and I'm already there. I'm already like really excited about this. So, yeah, so that's, yeah, that looks, uh, that's what I'm creating right now. If, if people want to reach out to you and help you your project or get to know more about you, where can they go? Well, they can go, uh, they can go on Facebook. It's uh, Mark Reed, like uh, M-A-R-C-R-E-A-D. Uh, I actually have a fundraiser right now on Facebook on uh, MARC READ on my Facebook page. Uh, I'm going to open up uh, eventually a Facebook page, but I need to be registered, so it's not going to be so yet. I'm going to set up a website eventually also, as soon as I'm registered as a nonprofit organization. Or you can uh, reach me at uh, M, my email address, which is M like in Mark, uh, G like in George, R-E-A-D 67 at gmail.com. So, so far, those are the best way to reach me. 
Uh, I'll also uh, be bold and leave my phone number, which is uh, Canada area code. It's one four three eight three five five four eight eight zero. So right now I'm looking for like uh, financial supporters, of course. Uh, I'm also uh, looking at mainly in BC. I'm looking for contacts, people who own sailboats. Uh, I'm looking also uh, to build a, uh, a ministerial board to get the project going. Uh, I'm looking for all kinds of resources that we that could be brought. I can, you know, the people have sailboats to lend me or sell me for peanuts. Go for it. Uh, I take anything. I take anything. It's, it's not for me. It's for the kids. Uh, and of course, it's for me because I love sailing, but it's basically, you know, to, to bring those kids uh, out of there. And in fact, uh, I don't know if you know that in BC, it's where the largest community of uh, drug addicts uh, is concentrated in North America. It's in, on Einstein Street. So that's one of the reasons why I'm moving to BC, because that's where it's the worst right now. So uh, that's about it. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much for sharing. It's been a blast, man. And uh, thank you so much. Well, Aaron, I want to really thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. It's uh, every time I talk about my project, it just like cements it even more inside me. Uh, it gives me more enthusiasm towards it. So uh, I thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 